This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Welcome Old South and many, many friends, uh, those in the room and those online. We're glad you're here. This begins a rather significant week in the life of Old South as we host a digital conference to think about the legacy of our founder, George Whitfield. Whitfield died just four houses down School Street on September the 30th 1770. So this Wednesday will be the 250th anniversary of his death, and so we will have a service to remember that on Wednesday as well as things all week. Now, if you're a little troubled that Whitfield might be having a little late of a memorial service, don't worry. There were lots of them after he died. They were in England where John Wesley preached and in Salem and in Newburyport and lots of places. Uh, And so this is just a remembrance of his significance in our life. We're going to pair the review of Whitfield's Great Awakening with the social pain we are in today in hopes of experiencing a just awakening. Like all reformers, Whitfield brought many important things to pass, and there were some things in the 18th century that he just didn't see, as there are many things you and I are not seeing about the Christian life even today. So as we just sang, may God open our eyes that we may see and open our ears that we may hear. So let us hear then from God's word a very curious healing miracle of Jesus found in Mark chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 22 to 26. Listen now to the word of God. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him, that is Jesus, and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? The man looked up and said, I can see people but they look like trees walking. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home saying, don't even go into the village. This is the reading of God's word. May it come to our strengthening and encouragement. Let us pray. Lord, now let your word from this word flow into our hearts through my words in such a way 
that we might hear and that we might see. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are always things in your life that you just can't see clearly in the beginning. Someone contacts you about a work position, and you can't imagine leaving where you are for an unknown job somewhere else. You, you just can't see it, and yet conversations occur, events happen a month later. You're at this new desk working a new job. What happened? You eventually saw something that you couldn't see originally. Or you're looking for a house to buy. And you drive by one and it's just, well, it just doesn't look very good. It needs new paint. It, it looks like it's had no attention to landscaping. Ugh, it would be such a fixer-upper and it's too expensive in addition. And yet a month later, you're signing the papers to close the deal because you saw what it could be. Somebody helped you see that. How many people arrive at college thinking they're going to major in chemistry and be a doctor? And usually about the first semester of their second year, when they make a D in inorganic chemistry, they realize, you know, maybe a business degree is not so bad. They suddenly saw something that they really couldn't see in the beginning. By October of 1975, I thought I saw clearly that I was the right husband for Sarah and that she was the right person for me. But in October of 1975, Sarah did not see this, and it was a little disheartening. It was one of the hardest stretches of time in my life as I felt like Abraham wandering around with a promise, but no... Uh, no completion. And then uh, about eight months later, Sarah saw what I saw. And 42 years of marriage have now followed. So often, I mean, admit it, so often we can't see what God is really doing in our midst. It's not so much that we need glasses as we need attention that to what God is doing, we need eyes to see and ears to hear. And one of the common critiques of the Old Testament prophets and Jesus is that you have eyes, but you do not see. And you have ears, but you do not hear. How is it that we get ourselves in this place where we don't see and we don't hear? My mother had a drill every single Sunday at lunch when I was a small boy. My mother always asked three questions about Sunday school. The first one was, were there any new children 
in your class today. Now, I grew up in a rather large church. We had about 25 kids. At my age group in my Sunday school, I, I can't notice all 25 kids. I, I usually said, I, I can't remember. And then my mother would say, well, I want you to picture the room and look around the room and tell me if there were any new children. So I would close my eyes and I would look around the room in my mind and go, oh, yep, there, there actually was one. Her second question then, did the child look like they were happy or that they were sad? And I always wanted to say, mom, I am not a psychologist. I don't notice these things. But she would always say, look around the room in your mind. Okay, I had to picture the room again. I had to go all the way around. I had to find that kid. Oh, the kid was crying. Actually, I think the kid was sad. And then her third question. Was there anything you could do to help that child? Now, my family was Dutch, and so we were pretty good at passing out a kind of guilt, but that was an interesting question. Was there anything you could do? Because, you see, what she was trying to get me to do is see something I hadn't seen and begin to notice something I hadn't noticed. She was constantly wanting to encourage me to look out for the lonely and the anxious. Noticing that did not come natural to me, I needed another touch to be able to see that. And I get in a crowd now, and I still have my mother playing in my mind. Is there anybody here not feeling comfortable? And what am I going to do about it? Now, our text today is about a blind man that could not see. There are lots of blind men in the New Testament. This blind man is not that different from other blind people in the New Testament. Only one of them in the New Testament, one of the blind people, actually gets a name. His name was Bartimaeus. We'll find him in the 10th chapter of Mark. There is a blind man in the New Testament in John 9 that actually creates a very well-known line that is in a very well-known hymn. If I say the first half of the sentence, even though you are socially distanced and supposed to be quiet, uh, if you're in the sanctuary, let's see if you can answer the other one. I once was blind, but now I see. Oh, you know the line. See, that was given by a blind man in John 9. I once was blind, but now I see. The man in Mark 8 is unique as a blind man in that he's the only one in any miracle story in the New Testament that had to be touched twice. Did you hear that as we read it? It required a second touch. A second touch. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus somehow failed in touch number one and that he needed to fix something that didn't quite get fixed? It's like calling the plumber back when there's still a little leak, by the way. But no, I think there's something else here. Look at the text. It says some other people brought this blind man to Jesus in a place named Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is on the far north end of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum. 
And some people have brought him. He didn't come on his own. And that's like the lame man in Mark 2 who was brought by friends. So this is another person brought by friends, which is always an encouragement to us as people of prayer to bring people to Jesus, bring people to Jesus. That's part of the instinct of the Christian life. They bring him to Jesus and they beg, literally beg, which means repeatedly ask Jesus, please touch him, please touch him, please touch him. So Jesus does something rare. He walks the man out of the village, which was not that large, out away from the crowd and away from the people. And there he takes the man and he does something which today doesn't feel very hygienic to us, but in that culture was regularly done as an expectation of anybody in the healing. And that was that he put saliva on the man's eyes, which was what he would have expected any healer to do. And then he touched him and he said, do you see anything? Jesus asks questions all through the New Testament. He asks 187 questions in the gospel, and he only answers three. He loves to ask people questions, and he's asking you that question today. Do you see anything? And the man replies, well, I see people but they look like trees walking around. Now, in what way do people look like trees? How would you come up with the conclusion that I see people, but they look like trees walking around? That means that he's seeing the shape of a person, but he can't distinguish that shape from the shape of something like a tree. He's just seeing an outline of a person. He's not seeing the facial features. He's not seeing the hair, which reminds me that wearing our masks in this season causes us sometimes to look like we're seeing a tree walking around. But the blind man is seeing a shape moving like the trunk of a tree. So once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored. And verse 25 says, he saw everything clearly. Now, there's a very interesting positioning of this text in Mark's gospel. Because the very next thing that happens after this text is what we call Peter's confession that you are the Christ at Caesarea Philippi, which was straight north of Bethsaida. And that's a marvelous story that I encourage you to look at at any point. But he makes a big confession that I know you are the Lord. You're the Messiah. But actually, as Jesus explains what's going to happen to a Messiah, that he's going to die and he's going to have to go through suffering, Peter rejects that idea and says, no, 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 we're not going to let that happen to you. So he doesn't actually see who Jesus is. And it actually takes Peter a second, and then as you heard Sarah read the passage, an even third touch to begin to understand. So this is not really the story of an ineffective healing that was fixed with a second touch. It shows us, in effect, a paradigm of the Christian life. 
that you can expect that at various points in your life, you will need another touch to see what God wants you to see. And it doesn't stop with two because Peter's about to have his third in Acts chapter two and really then his fourth in Acts chapter 10, which we heard read shortly ago. Jesus wants to restore us to seeing the world through the eyes of the kingdom of God, not through the eyes of the world in which we have grown up. And that takes lots of healing. That's why Paul says his passion in life is to present everyone mature in Christ where they are designed to go. So the reality uh, this text brings to mind is that people need second touches. Now the text Sarah read shows Peter who had at this point in his life never been in the home of a Gentile probably even once. And he had never had a Gentile in his home. There was no table fellowship, no social distancing except extreme and absolutely no touch of Gentile people by observant Jews. And in Acts 10, God tells Peter to no longer call unclean what God has made clean. Now, Peter doesn't understand it. What? Is this some kind of trick where I'm supposed to eat something unclean? No, 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 no. I won't do it. I won't do it. And finally, he gets open that God is showing him something because he shows it to him three times. Suddenly, there's a knock at the door. Gentiles are at the door asking Peter to go to visit Cornelius in Caesarea. These are Gentiles at his door asking him to go visit a Gentile in another place. His instincts would have been absolutely not. But you see, suddenly the Spirit is opening his eyes again. And he invites the Gentiles in. They explain the situation. He goes with them. He goes to the home of Cornelius. And when he preaches the gospel, Cornelius comes to full faith along with his household. And suddenly Peter realizes God is doing something far more than I could ever ask. He never actually saw Gentiles before. They were like trees walking around. And now he sees them. There are lots, lots of Christians who can tell you stories about a second touch. We all know people who hang around the church for years, but don't quite see Jesus for who he is, and they discover him in a brand new way. And these people would probably not say that I was not a Christian before, but something very new happened, and now I see. As I mentioned to you in the spring in a sermon on Nicodemus, my own story's that way. I grew up as a preacher's kid. I never had a day I would call disbelieving in my life. I was always at church. I knew many things about my faith. I didn't disagree with any of them. But at age 16, a second touch 
came upon me when I finally experienced what I knew in my head. And there's been a third and a fourth and a fifth touch and many others through the years. You find the same kind of discovery when people first encounter God's mission to the world. They were believing before, but suddenly they realize, wait a minute, to become a believer, I'm going to engage in what God is doing. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, actually said, in the Christian life, you can assume you'll go through three conversion experiences. Once to Christ, another one to be knit to the people of Christ, another one to be knit to the mission of Christ in the world. So don't be surprised if God wants to bring you a second touch. There is more. And this blind man is a paradigm for us, reminding us that there's more. But every now and then, friends, every now and then, there comes these sweeps in church history where second touches are given to large numbers of people at one time. The early church had a magnificent movement. We've actually never seen as great a movement to, God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ as happened in the first century. And it happened with such a magnificent, total experience of what it seemed to be following Christ because they, had, they were open and saw and had a passion for people who had been overlooked, like children and women and slaves. They suffered persecution. They had no buildings at all. The church grew fastest when we had no buildings. We worshiped in homes and we worshiped in things like catacombs. They had no real place in the society because they were not regarded as being office holders, etc. But they intensely loved people of all types and all classes. They People didn't look like trees to them. They really looked like people. And there was a movement. St. Patrick in Ireland escapes from being a slave. If you had escaped from being a slave in Ireland, who would have ever wanted to go back? But God called him back. God let him see people that had actually been his enemies. And he went back and preached the gospel in Ireland. And an incredible story of conversion happened in a country because one person had a touch that became a touch for so many. The Protestant Reformation, which we celebrate every year on October 31st. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, was a massive opening of eyes that there was more than just the institutional church of the day, which in some respects really didn't see people. But we learned about grace, and we learned about the word of God, and we learned about the importance of people and common life. We no longer saw people as trees walking around, but we began to see people clearly. And then our first great awakening that this church is the child of, they had forgotten the experience of faith. In the 1720s and the 1730s, the expression of faith in this area was quite formal and not very personal. It had become a rational, head-oriented faith, a doctrinal faith. They were knowing about the faith, but they hadn't experienced it. And then Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and Jonathan Parsons urged people to experience Christ through a new birth or through a second touch. This challenge upset people in churches. 
and liberated others. Upsetting because they wanted to remain seeing in a very limited way. They didn't mind seeing people as trees walking around. Whitfield was eventually asked not to preach in churches because he was upsetting people. So Whitfield started doing what Jesus did. He preached outside. Even in winter, friends, even in winter, Pulpit Rock that we'll be at next Saturday is a place not far from here in Raleigh where he preached outside to 2,000. The Boston Common, he preached to 25,000. He preached to enormous crowds. People became central again. People really mattered to Whitfield, reaching common people who didn't feel appreciated in the established churches of the day. The history of this church is all connected to a new way of seeing. The Presbyterian church, believe it or not, actually divided in two during this period. From 1741 to 1758, we were two denominations called Old Lights and New Lights. First touch and second touch in some ways. Whitfield began an orphanage for for African-American children in Georgia because he saw people in need. He didn't see everything clearly. He actually used slave labor at the orphanage. It's hard to judge an 18th century person by later standards, but we wish he saw more. He's kind of a curious case, so alive to God. And you're going to learn more about Whitfield this week. But the orphanage was such a good idea to touch people. And then, believe it or not, after the First Great Awakening ends in the 1740s, we go back to a very head-oriented faith. And by the time of the American Revolution, not many people went to church. A second Great Awakening broke out in the year 1799, and it was far-reaching, bringing reform in so many ways, opening eyes to issues like temperance, issues like women's rights, issues having to do with abolition, issues having to do with all kinds of experience of the faith. Camp meetings became the common core, and they were outside. And if you ever drive down Camp Meeting Road, you know that Asbury Grove is one of those camp meetings. Reform flowed out of this. Prisons were changed. Uh, all kinds of passions for the Word of God spawned the American Bible Society. Uh, people gave incredible ways to see missions both in the West and around the world. Churches began hospitals and medical care. It was a second touch, a second wind, a fresh wind of the Spirit. Renewal movements have always opened the eyes of multiple people at once. I'm praying, are you? for another such awakening, even now, for the church in this country. The gospel's doing well, folks, in Africa, in China, in South America, not so much here. Awakenings are always about blind spots, things we can't see. Did you know that I have a bald spot on the top of my head? It, it's right here. It's a bald spot. I can't see it. In fact, I'm not even every day sure it's there. Because when I rub my hand over it, I feel just a little bit of hair. 
just a little bit. But whenever I get in a place where a mirror is behind me and a mirror is in front of me, I go, what is that? Because it's so pronouncedly there. It's a bald spot. I still see my 22-inch afro of 1975, which is one of the reasons it took Sarah a little longer than it took me, I think. But when the mirror is held in a certain way, I see a bald spot. John talks about worldliness. And worldliness is that which makes sin look normal. Worldliness tries to convince us that greed and consumerism and pride and lust are natural. And racism is a part of worldliness too. It's that which makes sin look normal. I hardly ever meet anyone who tells me, you know, I'm a hardcore racist. We don't think we are. And yet from the perspective of a person of another race, we might just be, and we might be blind to it. So one of the things that renewals do is they help us see what we can't see, a second touch. And what American blacks are asking in these days is that we see not only their individual persons, which we usually say we accept, but we see that the culture is not making it easy. We don't bring lasting reform, folks, through anger and violence. That's not the way it comes. But through a deep touch of Jesus, a new touch. Do we need a new touch? The opposite of worldliness is to embrace the values of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. Just a few weeks ago, Sarah preached on thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do we need in our life to allow that to happen? The values of the kingdom to come here. So Jesus is asking in conclusion, what do you see? What do you see? And sometimes I have to admit, I see people like trees walking around. If we don't really see people, then we need a second touch. Touch me again, Jesus, that I might be on the way to noticing hurting people and that I might need a second, third, fourth, or 117th touch even today. Let's pray. Lord, by your word, conform us to what Peter saw, to what this blind man saw, to what Paul saw, to what Whitfield was seeing and what we need to see for the sake of your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.